Hello and welcome to the Smells Like Infinite Sadness podcast. I'm your host, Michael Taylor. For those of you who don't know, I run the website, SmellsLikeInfiniteSadness.com. It's a blog covering the best alternative rock from the 80s and 90s up to present day. I'm a proud middle-aged Gen Xer who is still obsessed with the music of his youth and loves to talk about it. And this week, my special guest is John Christ. Christ, whose real name is John Null, is best known for playing guitar in the first four Danzig albums. And his mix of blues, metal, and classically trained influences helped distinguish a group from frontman Glenn Danzig's previous work in The Misfits and Samhain. Given this year marks the 30th anniversary of Danzig's self-titled 1988 debut album, featuring hits like Mother Twist of Cain and She Rides, I thought it'd be fun to get Christ's recollections of that album. From how he joined the band, to working with Rick Rubin, the group's creative process, while also discussing his current work, which includes teaching guitar classes at Peabody Prep, Carroll Music College, and Coffee Music. In addition, we also discuss if there are any reunion plans for the classic Danzig lineup, uh, possibility performing classic Danzig songs live, and more. So sit back and enjoy. All right, so what's on your mind? What is the basic topic we got today? Well, I wanted to, first I wanted to kind of catch up with what you've been doing lately, and then after that I wanted to kind of discuss the 30th anniversary of Danzig, get some of your thoughts on that, and uh, you know, just kind okay. of your... But first off, I was curious, I know you're... You've been doing, uh, I think, music instructions and, and teaching and, and that kind of a thing. Have you been enjoying that aspect of musicianship? Or? Oh, yeah. I tell you what, um, I am teaching um, at Peabody. Have you heard Peabody in Baltimore, Peabody Conservatory of Music? Yeah. So there's a Peabody Conservatory of Music, and then there's a Peabody Prep. So the prep is where you get... Um, grade school and high school students that want to go into the conservatory and study music as a career. And the prep also has adult continuing ed classes. One thing I always thought that was interesting about Danzig when I was, you know, I used to read different guitar articles, interviews with you and things like that was, you know, Danzig basically came from a very punk background, but you were, mm-hmm. you were classically trained. So I was curious, how did you, first get involved in the band did rick rubin find you did danzig find you how did that how did they kind of integrate you in the band because he definitely elevated the sound and and changed it quite a bit when you joined i'll tell you the story let me get back to just to the peabody thing just for a second because this this is this relates to it when i was a kid um and i was coming up learning guitar um somewhere along the line i heard somebody like I don't know if it was Tony Iommi or somebody playing some classical guitar that was a rocker that I Mm -hmm. thought was really cool. And uh, then there was a band out of Canada called Triumph. Oh, yeah. And Okay, so Rick Emmett uh, was a really good classical guitarist. And then uh, the lead guitarist for the band Heart, you know, before the the song, uh, I guess it's Crazy on You, there's an acoustic guitar intro. Uh Uh-huh. It was kind of classical, right? So uh, I had a bunch of older sisters and their boyfriends would come over and play all that stuff. And they're like, oh yeah, this is like classical. This is great. And um, so I hadn't really started taking lessons. I played some piano as a kid in grade school and uh, Peabody was right downtown. So our piano teacher had studied at Peabody and, she suggested it to my parents that, Hey, John should probably study classical guitar down at the prep. So they got me in and, um, you know, I was 10 years old taking the bus through the city. (laughs) It was just (laughs) through the deepest, darkest parts of the city at night, right. With a guitar and bus money. And, uh, but I started studying classical guitar down there at the Peabody prep in downtown Baltimore. Now, that was probably, you know, in 76 or 77, I'm thinking 77. So here we, you know, that's a long time ago. And now I'm teaching there. But here's the difference. I am the first uh, rock star to come in and teach rock and roll at Peabody. I've got an advanced kids band, right? Kids from 8 to uh, 18 can join the rock group and i also have an adult rock band and uh this year is going to be the first year in december 16th uh sunday 5 30 p.m <laughs> that um <laughs> that there's going to be a teenage rock band playing at peabody they've been open um 
since the late 1800s. I think it was 1885 when Peabody opened, and it's always been classical music. Now they have jazz there too, but this is the first rock and roll ever to be performed at Peabody, and it's my kid's group that's doing it. How cool is that? That's awesome. So I'm trying to develop the rock and roll program at the prep. So maybe 10 years or so, it'll be moved into the conservatory and there can be a degree in rock and roll music started by John Christ. How badass is that? (laughs) That's awesome. So So I'm doing that way. I'll get back to your story in a second. And I'm also doing Skype lessons. So if you look me up, you know, JC, johnchrist.com. Um, I'm giving Skype lessons. I'm not cheap, but I'm the best. So, um, that's, you know, when I'm not performing and, and teaching in colleges, I also teach at another local community college and I give, uh, private lessons here on the ranch Well, the farm, I guess it's a farm. It's not really a ranch. It's more like a farm. Um, so that's what I do. Like I said, I'm not cheap, but I love to teach people. I teach, uh, my youngest student is four and my oldest is I think 77. So I teach oh, wow. all ages. Um, and not only, uh, healthy individuals, I have, uh, a few students that have disabilities. And so I'm all about, uh, helping people with disabilities, people that have had injuries and accidents. Um, I had to be rehabilitated after a major accident, so I understand the process and, um, that's a big part of what I'm doing right now. So back to the Danzig story, I was actually studying at a college, Towson State University uh, in Towson, Maryland, which is, I guess, just uh, inside or outside Baltimore City limits. Now it's just called um, Towson College. Um, I was studying jazz there under the late, great Hank Levy. You can Google him. He was a big, big big band director and he uh when he was young in his 20s he played with the stan kenton orchestra so i was a big jazz comp major i was a musical snob and one of my buddies uh saw me over uh, right before the semester started it was probably in 1986 and uh, he was driving by on his motorcycle i was probably cutting the grass and he said hey i'm working for an architectural firm downtown baltimore and um they're my boss's son. His name is London May. He plays in a band called Sam Hain. They got pictures on the walls of their albums. They're all covered in blood. They got like three or four records out and they need a guitar player. Why don't you try out? And I was like, nah, I'm not interested in that punk crap. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I'm trying, I'm trying to get educated so I can, you know, teach jazz and make a living. And he's like, all right, well, you know, I just want to let you know it's pretty cool and blah, blah, blah. So, um, several months, maybe four months later at the end of the semester, it was like Thanksgiving. No, it was Christmas time. Um, he came by again on his motorcycle and I was putting those lights up on the, you know, Christmas tree in the front yard, you know, as our family did every year. And, uh, he came by and saw me hanging from a branch and said, Hey man, this band, Sam Hain, they're still looking for a guitar player. And they got a producer, Rick Rubin at the time um the beastie boys first album had just come out run dmc was one of their uh big acts and ll cool j was their other big act and um he said you know they're gonna have a deal with cbs but rick rubin said he won't sign them until they get a guitar player so i said all right that sounds like it could be something so london came over to my house and I played some Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, and Ted Nugent for him. And he said, all right, sounds like you can play. And I'll come back with some tapes and stuff for you to learn. He did. And he gave me some tips. He said, this is punk rock. It's not what you're used to. You know, he said, it's all this down picking, down chopping. I'm like, why would anybody do that? (laughs) (laughs) I had no clue. He's like, haven't you heard of the Misfits? Like, yeah, I've heard of the Misfits, but I'm not a punker. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, a rocker. You know, I wore, I walked around with the, uh, you get blue jeans and then you would cut holes in the knees and put bleach on them and you wear your white Nike tennis shoes with red shoelaces and untied and the tongue's tucked up, you know, <laughs> <laughs> walking around in old 
faded Van Halen and Judas Priest piece concert t-shirts that you bought in the parking lot for five bucks. You know, that was my look. <laughs> but I had I had my BC Rich guitar by then. And because uh, I saw Joe Perry of Aerosmith had one on the back cover of Guitar Player magazine. So I had to have one because he was like the coolest guitarist ever. And uh, so London comes back a couple weeks later and goes, okay, it sounds like you're good. You know, I'll, I'll make the call and get you up for an audition. So um, it was, let's see, the audition, first audition was, uh, I think it was right in the beginning of January. And I went back, I was in Christmas break. So I was going back to school. Spring semester started the first week of February. And I went up for the audition, met Rick Rubin. And um, I don't know, have you read the stories about the audition? Uh, no, I really haven't heard it in detail. That's what I was curious about. Oh, okay. So I rode up there with my buddy, Tim, the one who worked for London's parents. And, um, you know, we followed uh, Erie Vaughn was driving. <laughs> and he drove like a million miles an hour. Erie was an excellent driver. He could have been a race car driver. He had like this Ford Granada with a V8. 305 in it and i i was in a little ford escort trying to keep up with him going through the lincoln tunnel he was swerving in traffic crossing lanes in the tunnel i was insane (laughs) and we're hauling ass i'm like god these guys are freaking maniacs i'd never been to new york city before never driven there so i'm following him through rush hour traffic trying to get to 28th street i think it was top hat studios owned by Oh, you have to fact check me on this. Either Tommy Hamilton or Joey Kramer of Aerosmith owned this rehearsal studio on 28th Street. All these cool amplifiers and uh, cabinets and stuff had uh, Aerosmith logos on them. And I was the first one there for the audition. I had to wait. I was the last one to audition. Didn't go on until like almost midnight. So I heard all these other cool guitar players try out before me. and I'm going, great, you know, another shredder, another shredder, another shredder. So finally I get to go in there and by this time I was pissed off. I was tired. I've been there all day, just walking around the waiting room, you know, waiting my turn to go. I, all I brought was uh, one guitar and um, just one little stomp box. That was it plugged into some piece of shit Marshall trying to get a sound out of it was a joke. So I was just like, all right, fuck it. I'm just going to go in there and play fast and get the hell out of here. And I went in and played and I did all right. It wasn't perfect. Uh, but the down picking thing, I started cramping up because they were going so fast. You know, it was like, it was insane. Uh, but it was fun. Glenn was cool and Erie was cool. And uh, London and I knew each other. So we were jamming. And it wasn't until I didn't really know who Rick Rubin was. But the, the structure of the audition was we're going to play some songs off of each of the Sam Hain records. And some of them. I learned when I was listening to the mixes, the mixing on Sam Hain album sucked so bad. Mm -hmm. You couldn't separate the guitars out. It was like this mush of guitar. Right. So Uh I'll combine more than one part and Glenn be like, that's not right. This is right. You know, I'm like, okay, show me the right part. And he'd show me it once. And I'd have it, you know, it was simply, it wasn't hard stuff to play. And he was like, that's not right. I said, okay, show me, you know, I handed my guitar. He's like, play it like this. I'm like, okay, perfect. Got it. And then, uh, then, the my favorite part of the audition we said all right those guys sat down in london would play a beat and then i would just make up a song and we would start jamming i just fucking went off man i was doing iron maiden i was doing juice priest i was doing new i was just ripping all over the place then ruben and george draculius who discovered the black crows later years later was there and they started banging their heads when i was doing acdc type of stuff you know and i was like they liked it so then the audition was over Glenn didn't like me, you know, I was playing the down picking so hard. I broke the index finger, uh, fingernail off my picking hand. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I was, I was bleeding all over my guitar and I bumped into Glenn singing over his shoulder in the microphone, you know, and Halloween and shit like that. We were playing and I left blood on his shoulder and I had blood on the microphone. I had blood on my hand. It was, I left the blood on my guitar for like a month. <laughs> uh, but after after the audition they were like okay nice to meet you blah blah, blah. and I, I thought you know whatever i didn't give a shit at this point i was like all right i did my thing i'm good let's go and then rick rubin stopped me and said uh, you know do you have to go home right now i was like no i said i start college tomorrow <laughs> you know <laughs> um, yeah i was supposed to start school the next day and here they pushed the audition to the very fucking night before and um 
and he goes, nah, let's go hang out in the village. We'll get some pizza and we'll go to the studio. I was like, okay. So, you know, he starts interviewing me, you know, what guitar players you're like, you know, do you like, uh, Angus Young? I was like, Oh my God, ACDC, blah, blah, blah. You know, I said, you like, you know, Led Zeppelin. Oh yeah. So we like a lot of the same guitar players. So we went down, got some pizza, went down to a studio. <clears throat> just, it was just a doorway in an alley. Right. So he pushes a button, the door opens. This is down in Greenwich village. It's about one, one thirty in the morning. And this six foot blonde answers the door, fucking knockout. And she goes, Hey Rick, come on in. So we go into the studio. All of a sudden I start seeing these gold and platinum albums. The carpet was purple. It was Jimi Hendrix studios, electric lady land oh, studios. Wow. I couldn't believe it. I started getting chills. The hair rised up on my arms. My arm the back of my neck. I looked at my buddy Tim. He had this high pitched giggle. He's like, "Oh my god, you know who we are." You know, it's pretty funny. And they take <laughs> us in, and I'm looking at all, you know, all these are you experienced in uh, Electric Ladyland? All these single platinum singles everywhere. The walls were painted tie dye. It was crazy. So we went in <laughs> to a little lounge area, and we were watching videos. And there was a band on VHS tape. He said, check out this drummer. We were watching Slayer. Oh, right? nice. And he said, I'm thinking about signing them. What do you think? And I was like, Oh my God, they're great. He said, yeah, but the drummer wants to quit. And I said, well, I know a couple of drummers from Baltimore. So we were talking. I said, I don't think Glenn liked me that much. He goes, well, he thought maybe you were on speed or something. Cause you were so intense. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, no, nah, I explained, I was just pissed off, you know, cause I was tired. And, uh, and he goes, well, I, I want you, I like you. I think you got the right stuff and the fire and you can definitely play. I want you to come back for another audition. I said, well, I don't know if Glenn, you know, if I made him happy, he said, what makes Glenn happy? What makes me happy? will make Glenn happy. And I said, okay. So they sent me back for another audition. And that's when, uh, again, they wouldn't call me back. I, Glenn sent me some more cassettes of misfit stuff and Sam Hain stuff to learn. So I learned it, started calling him back. He wouldn't return my call. So I, started putting the telephone receiver. This is when we all had landlines. Okay. Mm -hmm. Answering machines had cassettes in them. He had all this horror movie music. on his <laughs> Leave a message. And it was like uh, the ho uh, the Halloween. Right. It was a theme song. So as soon as that was over, I cranked up my Marshall and I was just, you know, I was playing die, die, my darling. And, you know, uh, let the day begin. And in my grip, I was just crank and I just kept playing until the tape ran out on his machine. And I did this for like a week straight. Finally, he called me back and he's like, John, you got to stop leaving those messages. I can't get any calls. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, Glenn, I need this audition. I, you know, I said, I gotta, you know, I got stuff going on. I need to know what I'm going to do. And so finally, you know, uh, they set up the second audition and, I was expecting a whole bunch of guitar players. There was one guy that had worked in the crew. As soon as I saw him walk in, I knew I had the gig. He didn't even have to play. I could just tell he didn't have the confidence, wasn't ready to go. I've been practicing my ass off for like three weeks. You know, I was like spitting fire. And um, <laughs> and the guy that came to try out ended up coming in and asked if he could watch my audition. So they said, sure. He came in. Uh, we started jamming and, uh, we did a half a dozen songs and then Glenn cleared the room, said, all right, gigs yours if you want it. I was like, let's do it. So, uh, he called everybody back in and we started working on twist the cane that night. Wow. There you go from the source. You know, you're talking about how you're, I now was asking you about how you came from such a different background than in the punk background, but I was also curious during the songwriting process. I know every album always says, all songs by Glenn Danzig, but obviously he can't play the stuff you can play. So I wanted to know, you know how much you contributed as far as the songwriting process went. How 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 did that work with, with you guys? How how did that generally start? And how was the... Yeah, well, G Glenn is not a guitar player. Glenn is not a keyboard player, okay? Glenn is not a bass player. Glenn is not a drummer. He has just enough skill to show you what the basic idea is just enough for an outline. Okay. He does not have that skill to be able to record stuff at a pro level. All right. His creativity is off the charts. All right. His lyric writing 
his melodic sense, his timing. He has great timing. That's what separates great artists from okay artists. He has this internal clock that is fucking amazing. And I learned so much from him. But how it worked was my ear, I don't have perfect pitch. My dad, God rest his soul, had annoyingly perfect pitch, okay? (laughs) I mean, uh, a horn would screech. Um, Somebody would honk a horn. He would know that it's an E flat. Oh, wow. You know, he could just, any sound. Yeah, a bird would chirp at two or three pitches. And I'd say, Dad, you're lying. He'd go, go over to the piano. And I'd play him, and he was right. I was like, son of a gun. I, I wasn't born with it. He was born with it. So I had to learn. And uh, at college, what I learned was relative pitch. So if you give me a note, I have certain pitches in my ear that I've memorized and I'll compare it to those pitches and then I figure it out, right? I do the math. And uh, so that's what I did. Um, I'd been in college, so my skill set was really sharp when I met Glenn. And he would go, you know, I'm like, wait, so that, uh, uh, do you want that a D or a D sharp? And he'd be like, what? I don't know. He said, uh, uh, I said, sounds like you want a D sharp. And I'd play it. And he'd go, yeah, that's it. I said, oh, okay. So I figured out how to translate what he was singing with his ear to what I heard in mine. And then I would calibrate the relationship. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So if he sang it a certain way, then I said, okay, what he really is saying is not that pitch. He's saying this pitch. And then I would make the connection so I could translate what was in his head, in his ear, in his heart, right? And where it was supposed to go on the guitar. So I became this human guitar loop machine. So when we went into pre-production with Ruben, if anything wasn't right or he wasn't happy with the pattern, I would just start looping all this different shit until they would hear stuff that they really liked. And then they would give me a direction. I'd say, oh, okay, you want more like this, more like this. And they would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I would just keep developing, developing. And from my point of view, I was always the too many notes guy, see. Mm -hmm. I love to play a lot of notes. I love complex stuff. I love jazz. They're like, no, 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 too much, too much, too much, Mozart. We need less. So that was hard for me to adjust to, to kind of dumb it down. Not dumb it down. I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean I had to simplify it because it was less is more. Uh We need to say more with fewer notes, with fewer chords. We want more emotion. We want more tension in the bends. So Rick Rubin was huge on getting me to bend more notes and bend more chords. She rides. And then in the bridge, I love that part. Right? So those bands, total Rick Rubin influence. And Glenn said, listen to Muddy Waters, listen to Will. He was huge Willie Dixon fan, right? Mm-hmm. He was like, you got to listen to Willie Dixon. You got to listen to Howlin' Wolf. You got to listen to Bo Diddley, blah, 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 blah. You know, you got to listen to Elvis. You know, we, one night with you, we used to jam that at rehearsal just for fun. You know, listen to Roy Orbison, you know. So he was like, okay. So I, I you know, I stopped listening to Judas Priest, Iron Maiden. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I had to get it off of rat. No more rat, no more Motley Crue. You know, a little Metallica was okay. Um, but all that other uh, hair metal stuff, Van Halen, no, it was all gone from my vocabulary. I had to get rid of any color in my closet, only black, purple. That was it. No white. You know, no blue jeans. All Erie took me shopping, took me all of the places, made sure I got the right boots, got the right pants. He he and Glenn would silkscreen T-shirts. Remember that T-shirt I always used to wear, No More Mr. Nice Guy on Your Knees, Bitch, with the Sam Hain logo? <laughs> Erie printed those up. Erie did the silkscreens on all my guitars in my guitar cases. Oh, wow. So Erie was totally responsible for my look. Not the hairdo, not the poodle head 
experiment that was a horrible failure. <laughs> 1987. Uh-huh. Okay, those early photo sessions. You know what I'm talking oh, about, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, very, okay. That's some curl going on. That was not the band's idea. I was bored. It was summertime. There was nothing to do. And there was a friend of Erie's that did hair and row well, a failed experiment. <laughs> So all of that was, I was what they call it in sociology and psychology is re-socialization. So they took my old persona and created a new one, a new image, a new look, new behavior patterns, even new styles of, of playing guitar. Um, and thankfully, you know, my ear was, was good enough that I was able to assimilate all those things at once. Now it didn't happen overnight. It was a growing period as the whole band, you know, Rick Rubin had to get John Christ, who was John Knoll. And we didn't even have a name yet. We'd sit around Erie and Chuck and I would sit around drinking with baby book names, (laughs) trying to come (laughs) up with a cool name for me. John Wolf, John Black, John White, John Purple, John Red, John Green, John Blue. No, I don't want to say John Blue. John Blue whom? I don't know. So, you know, we went around and around. Chuck Biscuits was hilarious. He would be drawing cartoons the whole time. He's an amazing artist. So eventually I was out of town when we were doing the cover and Glenn said the record company called. They needed a name. So I just picked John Christ. You're dubbed John Christ. Okay. That was it. family hit the freaking roof they wanted to call me john chris which is short for christian <laughs> hardcore roman catholics i'm still recovering anyway <laughs> i digress well you know i was thinking too that's that- enough for half a book right there i don't know what more information you need <laughs> well i got a few more questions <laughs> So Glenn would come up with it. He'd call me on the phone. Hey, I got this idea for the song. You know, it's called Pain in the World. Okay, cool title. What does it sound like? I say, hang on, let me get a guitar. I put the guitar down on the sofa on a pillow right next to my head, and I would curl my knees up so I could keep the pillow straight while I got my electric guitar unplugged and he would be singing or, or he would have his Les Paul unplugged on the other end and we would work out a tune. Say, so, you know, work on that, loop it and we'll rehearse it on Wednesday. Okay. That's what we did. And there's, I mean, there's such a raw sound on that album. It's very immediate. And, you know, I, I think you talk about the simplicity was so, you know, it's so infectious. The hooks were so, you know, were so awesome, but it seems like it was very kind of off the cuff. How, how long did it take you guys to record that album? Was it, was it like fascinating? Which one? The first one, or or was it, or did it? Oh, the first one. The first one took a while because um, here's the rub. Um, Rick Rubin was the music producer for and supervisor for a soundtrack for a movie called Lesson Zero. Oh yeah, I remember that. Okay, with Robert Downey Jr. and uh, McCarthy, Andrew McCarthy. Right, remember that? Mm-hmm. Okay, it was like their first movies or something. And we wanted, we were ready to start pre-production and start recording, but Rick Rubin was always in L.A. working on this movie soundtrack. And uh, we were pissed and complaining. We were like, we want to get going, we want to get going, but we couldn't do it without Rubin. And he's like, ah, I need to finish the soundtrack. You guys want to help me in the studio? You know, write a couple of songs and blah, blah, blah. And Glenn and Rick started hanging out, going to... Uh, WWF wrestling matches and stuff. That's where they bonded. They love professional wrestling and comic <laughs> books and all that kind of shit. I wasn't really into it, but they were. So they started hanging and Rick was like, okay, you guys help me finish this thing. And uh, that'll help me finish the movie and come back and start recording your project by, you know, the fall or whatever. And we said, okay. So that's when we went in and we did um, less than zero. You and me, less than zero. So Chuck and Erie and I were the the rhythm section, the backing band, which they named the Power and Fury Orchestra. That's right. So actually, my my first recording for Ruben was on the Less Than Zero soundtrack. We didn't get names in the credits, but we were part of the Sound and Fury Orchestra. So that was my first experience uh, in a real nice studio like CBS and a couple other places in Manhattan. So that was a trip. Uh, so that took 
couple of months and back and forth and getting all that done. So then when Ruben finally came back in the fall, we did a quick pre-production, maybe, you know, a few weeks worth. And then we got into the studio. We did all of the basic drum tracks, uh, I think at a place in Greenwich Village called Sorcerer Sound. And then we scrapped them all, I think. We must have done 25 takes of Twisted Cane and a whole bunch of takes of Mother. And and uh, it just, after the holidays, I think Rick went back and listened to the tapes. And he's like, ah, I'm not crazy about it. We weren't crazy about the sounds we got. So we went to a different studio and started over. And so that took a while to get it. And by the time we got to Overdubs, we were in Chunking Studios with Steve Ett, great engineer. And he did a lot of the rap records, I think, with them. And uh, Dave Bianco was another engineer. He also did some mixing. Great guy. I learned so much from those guys, you know, because this is the first time I'm doing leads uh, on a real record. Now, what you don't probably don't know is that when we started recording the record, we've gone out to L.A. to do uh, a gig with Slayer at the Palace. But, no, the Palladium. The Palladium on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. You ever been there? No, I've heard, always heard of it though, but never. I've actually never been. All right, so we opened up for Slayer out there. Now on the plane when we flew out there, uh, I took two guitars and Erie took two guitars, and I took Chuck took a snare drum. Well, we didn't have road cases yet, so the baggage handlers threw all our stuff onto the conveyor belts, broke the neck on the bitch. Oh, <laughs> I got to the hotel room, opened my guitar case. The neck was snapped in half. Oh, I had a Les Paul, but I didn't have a backup guitar. So I had to borrow a guitar from Terry King, a Slayer. I borrowed his Red Mockingbird, which to this day he will not sell. My favorite guitar of all time, that son of a bitch. <laughs> but uh, he won't sell it. And he knows the guitar I'm talking about because everybody lets play it offers him money and he will never sell that guitar. So anyway, I, I got to use it. It was great. It was a sold out house. Here's the thing. You have to look this up entertainment tonight. They oversold the show. There were 200 kids out on sunset Boulevard that had tickets that the fire marshal would not let enter. These are Slayer fans from Southern California and the inland empire. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm talking about, you know, these white Latino mixes that are severe speed metal heads that are told after they've driven an hour and a half that they can't get into the show and they can hear the music. <laughs> <laughs> so they started trashing cars and breaking windows and throwing stuff around and uh, the riot police were called out. The helicopters were out. We came off the of stage. I mean, the place was nuts. The fans, they didn't like us at first, but after about six or seven songs, we won them over. And the place started erupting. Biggest pit I'd ever seen in my life. The Palladium is a ball ballroom, so there are no seats. It's, it's just huge, huge round wooden dance floor, and the place is just going freaking nuts. I'd, I'd never been on stage when people were climbing all over the place trying to get at you and pull you into the pit. <laughs> I'd, I'd never, <laughs> you know, I mean, it was just, it was a new experience, but it was intense. My sister, one of my sisters flew out for the show and an old friend of mine was there. So it's like I had people, I had witnesses, I had proof. Uh, we came off stage and we're going back around outside and uh, helicopters were flying everywhere. We heard the loudspeakers, stay off the streets, all kinds of stuff. And we went back to the hotel entertainment tonight, said the Slayer and Danzer concert at the Palladium was oversold and riot police were called out. It was pretty crazy. So when I went to record the rhythms for the first album, my baby, my BC Rich, was at the BC Rich factory up in the high desert, uh, like Victorville, California. Bernie Rico is repairing it. And uh, so I didn't have a guitar to start the album with except my Les Paul. So Ruben said, go to 28th Street in Manhattan, Music Row and find a guitar to rent. So I went in there and Lisa Sharkin, who later became my first guitar tech, um, knew Ruben. And I went through every guitar in the whole store until we came down to three or four. And I just kept playing Mother and Twisted Cane and Possession and M.I. Demon over and over and over until we came down to a guitar that I'd never heard of, uh, Paul Reed Smith. 
I knew that Santana played it, but it was the most even sounding one, you know, it just balanced. Mm-hmm. Sounded like a Gibson, didn't sound like a Fender, uh, you know, had a good mid range and a nice bottom on it. Wasn't too muddy like Les Paul's can be, wasn't too twangy like Strats can be. So rented that, went in and started the project between that and the Les Paul. And when my BC Rich came back four or five months later, I put Paul Reed Smith pickups in it. And that first pickup just went bad in March. So I've been using that same pickup for 30 some years. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. Cool. Huh? That's awesome. Yeah. And one thing that that's an earful. He's just like, hey, let him roll. Look, I I got this new Maxwell House coffee that has 1.75, the amount of caffeine as their old stuff. I think it's working. <laughs> yeah, think? I think so too. It's great. <laughs> and it's cheap. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think one thing that, that really defined the album in many ways, and also all the dance things albums you played on, was your use of pinch harmonics. I was kind of curious how that developed. Was that something that you were really into before joining the band, or is that something that kind of developed? It was, it, it's such it punctuated so many great dancing songs. I'm just curious how you kind of developed that sound and and what drew you to it. Okay, so uh, let's see. It all of that comes from two songs, and there is a Ted Nugent album called Weekend Warriors, and there's a song on there called Need You Bad. Are you aware of this song? I am not actually. It's one new song that I. Do How old like. are you? I. <laughs> I'm 47. So. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So you were a kid when it came out. All right. Uh, you're probably just not a Nugent fan. Um, but when I was growing up, one of my buddies, Chris, he lived up the street, and uh, huge. I turned him on. I, uh, let's see, one of my birthdays in the seventies, I got the cat scratch fever album Okay, because I, I saw a classmate play cat scratch fever on guitar. He had an electric guitar. He was the only kid in the class that had one. I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. All the chicks dig it. And then I was like, who is that? And they said, Ted Nugent. So, um, <clears throat> you know, we didn't have the internet back then. <laughs> <laughs> And one of my other buddies, older brother was into kiss and Jethro tall and Led Zeppelin and fog hat and Ted Nugent. He said, my brother's got that album. So he borrowed it and we listened to it. And, um, so I got the, the following Christmas, I got the catch scratch fever album. Well, I played for my buddy, Chris up the street. I never got it back. (laughs) (laughs) So he became an instant Nugent disciple and thereby therefore by proxy I became one and uh, I'd never heard anybody with that energy play guitar like that like Hendrix was great but he was laid back you know Clapton was great and he was bluesy uh Jimmy Page had a lot of that fire you know um Van Halen let's see Van Halen was just starting to hit with the first album so it was still pretty new. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I heard Need You Bad, it is a clinic for pinch harmonics. Anybody that wants to learn how to do pinch harmonics, go back, Ted Nugent, Need You Bad off the Weekend Warriors album. They didn't have CDs back then either, just vinyl and cassette. Um, and then the other one was... Um, LaGrange by ZZ Top. Oh, yeah. And I heard an interview with Ted Nugent where he said Billy Gibbons is one of the greatest blues guitar players out there. So, of course, I had to become a ZZ Top fan. And he did a lot of pinch harmonics between those two. And then I just incorporated it into my playing. And um, and it, it just started to come out on its own by the time I got to writing songs. Uh, they were just in there. I didn't even realize I was doing it anymore until somebody would point it out to me. You know, so when I started doing Twist the Cane, uh, the rhythm parts, they just popped out. You know, they were just there from the get-go. I didn't plan it. You know, they were just there. And then I got to do even more on uh, How the Gods Kill. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a big one. Um, 
uh, yeah, so it was a lot of fun, you know, and, and even, um, ooh, the second album, Lucifuge had a lot of them. Did it, did it really, did Glenn really respond to that with something that he was always kind of like, you should do more of those? Or I seem like he's, you know, it was always, no, it just kind of, no, just, he was always like, you're, you know, fewer notes, fewer notes, too many notes, play it more like Johnny Rotten, play it, you know, more like Filthy Phil or, you know, whoever fast Eddie, you know, he liked motorhead and he liked the sex pistols and that kind of stuff. And the New York dolls, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's like just more emotion, more bending, fewer notes, you know? So I think he tolerated, uh, a lot of the, the fancy licks. I mean, it, have I been left to it? There would have been harmony guitar parts all over the place, <laughs> you know, and the leads would have been longer, <laughs> but that wasn't my call. Was that weird for you guys when like mother didn't really become like a big hit until the nineties? Was that strange when that happened? Oh, it was amazing. It was great. Um, you know, we always liked mother and it was a fun song. Um, and the crowds always loved it because it just had such a great energy and, uh, they responded to it. But I think, you know, we got, equal or even better responses to twist the cane and she rides was a huge fan favorite mm-hmm, and absolutely. am i demon she rides and twist the cane were like the big ones you know um her black wings devil's play thing was huge for the fans snakes of christ that's, that's by my yeah, favorite that's that my was f- that was big too that one later on that one, by the time the third album came out, Snakes of Christ were doing it in the beginning of the set and people really liked it. Um, but initially it, it wasn't quite as popular. I remember Blood and Tears was a big one, but we didn't do it live that often. So I I read an article not too long ago, Metal Insider, where you had kind of discussed how you would be interested in, in playing with Danzig again. I was curious, have you spoken to him at all in recent years? Is it something that, that you've approached him with or is that just kind of, Kind of floating the idea. Uh, there. I haven't spoken to him directly, but uh, anyone that knows him and knows me knows that I'm up for it and I'm open. You know, and I've just been putting it out there through social media that uh, you know if he wants to do some shows or just have me come out and play Mother or something, uh, I'm totally down for that. I think that would be a lot of fun because I think there's such a I mean, you know, I still think he's putting out some good stuff, but there's something about that core original lineup. There was such a magic to those first four albums that I think fans oh, would, yeah. would really respond, respond to a, like a full-blown band reunion tour. I think it's just there's something. Yeah, really well, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's surrounded himself with a lot of great, uh, accomplished professional players, but um, there's no chemistry. You know, there's just not, when you see him, there's no real interaction between musicians on stage it's you know that chemistry that we had where we were all playing together and feeding off each other and pump pushing each other up and down you just don't see that with any of his later bands it's just not there it's it's not a criticism of their abilities by any chance it's just they just didn't have the the connection there was no bond i mean erie and glenn had known each other since they were kids basically high school you know and Chuck Biscuits was from the same generation. I mean, he'd been playing in bands since he was 13 years old. I was the outsider that came in with the heavy metal sound and edge, you know? Um, and it was just like this pounding sound. I mean, you you know, nobody sounds like Chuck Biscuits on the drums. I don't care who you are. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, I don't care who you are and how good you are, even if you're Neil Peart from Rush. It's not you don't hit the drums the same way. Keith Moon was Chuck's favorite drummer. He and Bonham. So the finesse stuff was Bonham and the pounding stuff was Keith Moon. And that was Chuck Biscuits, except Chuck Biscuits basically stood up or leaned on a bar stool when he played. I mean, he was just an alien behind that kit. You know, there's no, you, you just, no other drummer sound has that sound, that tone the way he hits the cymbals and the snare and the, the kick drum, nobody can duplicate it. As soon as he was gone and Joey Castillo came in, there's a huge hole 
that was never replaced. Was so, tough. yeah, the only way to even get close to that sound is to have him on the drums. If you put him on the drums, it'd be a lot closer, uh, even without me or without Erie. But to get that whole thing, you know, he would have to be there. And then, of course, me, because, I mean, they're out there doing the third album or whatever they did in Vegas. And I, I'm, you know, friends of mine were there, said it was a great show, but didn't sound anything like the original. Well, I had, actually, I had actually interviewed Tommy Victor a few years ago, and he was saying that, you know, he tried to comp- compliment your parts as much as easy, easily as he could. But he said he's like, actually, he's, he's really challenging to follow your style because it's like he's like it sounds simple but there's a lot more going on than you think so he was very reverential towards you and talking about you know and i always thought you were one of the most underrated guitarists out there as well so i think that my hope oh i am i'm a genius they just don't know it (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the the, the fans know it the rest of the world just hasn't figured that out yet that's (laughs) all but i don't hold it against them And if I don't say it, who will? Nobody except you and me, a few other fans. <laughs> well, we know it. My hope is maybe since the Misfits thing is taken off, maybe he'll be more prone to doing another reunion thing. So maybe that will. Oh, eventually... it'd be great. I mean, when I get out there and start playing on a more regular basis, I'm gonna I'm gonna seek him out and drag him up on stage, whether he likes it or not. Same thing with Jerry and Doyle. You know, they're. I mean, we're all basically musical family, even though we travel in different circles and haven't had our differences. God, no, we all have. But I mean, we're all in this alone together. Life is so short, especially now that a lot of us are, you know, over 50 and heading into that next chapter. And it's like time's running out. You know, we we, we got to bury the hatchet. We got to just go out and have some fun. And our fans have aged with us. They've experienced life. They need to relive some of that fun. Absolutely. You know, they remember the days they were there. They were the ones in the audience watching us kill it in our prime. They want to relive some of that. They forgive us for getting older. They're happy we freaking survived. And the fact that we can still play, that's all the better. Why not do it? It's a no freaking brainer. We should be doing it. And I'm the first one to say that the 11th commandment is thou shalt not should on thyself. <laughs> but in this particular case, I think it's appropriate. <laughs> and you can quote me on that. I agree. You guys should make it you happen. You know, I mean... Glenn and I do not have to have a civil conversation. We could just show up on stage, wink and smile, and take care of business. And I kind of want to bring it back full circle talking about, you know, you're doing your music instructions now and teaching music. When did you decide to kind of make that transition, you know, from being a a touring musician to to going back to kind of your roots and 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 teaching again? Um, in 2012, after my dear sister passed away, um, from cancer, it was a wake up call. And, uh, you know, I was still here and I felt like, you know, you got to do something, you got to do something meaningful. You got to pick yourself up and, uh, start living your life. And, start really doing what you want to do, but giving back. And uh, I learned a lot throughout that experience. And people started telling me that, Hey, you've got a gift for teaching. You have a way of watching and listening someone perform to someone perform or play, making them feel comfortable and then giving them brief suggestions on how they can improve their technique and their performance. And, um, (laughs) I actually went back to school and said, you know what? Uh, My current wife at the time, uh, my girlfriend said, you know, you need to get out of here and do something. Why don't you go get off your butt, go back to school, take some classes. I don't care if they're for credit or not. So I did. I started going to a local, uh, community college and took some music courses and it was so funny because the instructors over there happened to be fans but they didn't know it and i didn't tell anybody who i was or with whom i played so nobody knew that i was in danzig they just knew that i was this geezer that wanted to play classical guitars so I, <laughs> I started taking classical guitar 
lessons from a fan and uh, who didn't know that who I was and I didn't know that he was a fan. Um, so I started playing and then we did a, a recital, um, that I guess it was that summer. And then again, that fall and students started coming up asking who I was and wanted to take lessons from me, not my instructor. <laughs> so, so by then I told him who I was. And so he got me a gig teaching at the college and that's how it started in, uh, 2015. So I said, you know what? I might as well. I started that full circle is right. I started my music degree at Towson back in the eighties. So I finally finished my music degree in, uh, let's see, 2016, all these years later. So for any of those people that think it's too late, it was hard because my teachers that I was taking lessons from were younger than me and my fellow students were, I was old enough to be their dad. I was taking a math class. Here's a funny story. Somebody recognized me. The teacher was a fan and called me out in front of the class. So the final exam, the, I was the last one to finish every test. Okay. These kids would finish a half hour or more before me. <laughs> so old and slow. And I had to get through these math classes. So for the final exam, there were three kids that stayed after. Why? They wanted my autograph. So my final exam, my teacher graded it in front of the class, told everybody that I passed. I got an A and it was okay to ask me for autographs. So then we started doing autographs. <laughs> How funny is that? So That's I gave awesome. my math teacher, Larry Alvarez is his name. We gave him an autograph. Pretty funny, huh? <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yep. And then when I graduated, the dean of the college, I was talking to him. It turned out he told me he was a drummer. And, um, I had just started teaching there. Well, that was in 2016, this past March, they had the faculty concert there. And, um, now they don't call him a Dean anymore. He's just the president of the college or something. And I asked him, Hey, you want to play at the faculty concert? And he was like, no. And then I kept telling him, no, you do. You want to play with me? <laughs> <laughs> I said, because we're going to play rock and roll. I'm bringing it. I'm not messing around. This is going to be a full on rock show. So I think you should think about it. I'll send you some links. I sent him video links to when we did the John Stewart show, when we did rock in the ring, you know, in 95 with jo Joey Castillo and drums, but there's still 60,000 people there. You know, I sent him some other Danzig footage and he was like, all right, all right. So he came on stage, did a couple of, uh, Gary Clark jr. Songs, oh, yeah. you know? Uh, what is it? When my train comes in and some other one, I don't know. But, uh, so I got him involved in the concert. So I got the president of the college playing drums and, uh, we had a good time. We finished with, uh, the encore was mother. So I saved the BC rich for the last song. Sweet. <laughs> Came out and the place, place went nuts. Yeah. So at some point we'll get a video of that. And sometimes that, that will be on wayne's world public access tv <laughs> here in maryland probably come this fall i think that's great so that's the kind of thing so now things are starting to take off you know I'm, i've figured out the teaching thing that my methods are working better than the school's methods and you know i started with peabody um the guy who hired me quit and went to another institution and the other instructors that were there dropped out. So I'm the only guy doing the rock and roll thing, but I'm doing it my own way and it's starting to really take off and kick ass. So we're making history in December and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's full speed ahead, man. That's awesome. That's great. Yep. And I think, uh, you know, if, if Glenn doesn't want to do anything, that's fine. I'm going to do Danzig stuff anyway. I'll, I'll get a group of people that can sing it. That's the hardest thing, man. He sings high. He can't anymore. But in the early days, he, nobody screamed like that guy. Come no. on. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was amazing, right? Um, to hit those high notes and mother, that's a B. Okay. Most of the tenors in rock and roll sing A's. That's a whole step above it is to get that B. That's extremely difficult. And the fact that you're screaming around it before it after it i can't do it i never could do it that's why i've never done a cover of mother because i could never sing it i love <laughs> to go out and play with other bands where the guys can at least fake it you know but i'm putting together a band where i will find somebody that can sing that stuff and i will go out and do the dancing stuff 
I'm going to ask Glenn for his blessing. Uh, if he says no, and I'll sue you or whatever, I'll say, no, you don't have to sue me. I'll pay you whatever you want for the performance royalties. I don't care, but I'm going to do it because I think the fans want to see it. I think so too. Who doesn't want to hear Twisted King with that tone? Who doesn't want to hear M.I. Demon? Who doesn't want to hear Godless? Who doesn't want to hear She Rides? Who doesn't want to hear Snakes of Christ? Yeah, it's not, you know, probably won't be Chuck Biscuits on drums or Erie Vaughn on bass or whatever. You might come out. I'm sure if I go down to uh, Nashville or whatever, he'll come out and play. That would be great. You know? Erie's game. So, I mean, maybe I can at least get, you know, those guys for a few shows, but to take it on the road, how could... How would people not want to see it? Especially when you start out, it's not going to be in a big venue. It's going to be in a club where it all started. It's the best place to see a show anyways. You know what I'm, what's that? It's the best place to see a show anyways. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll need help like yours, greasing the palms of the local promoters in Austin, in San Antonio, in Dallas, in Houston, you know, in Oklahoma City. Uh, you know, in your region to, to get the word out, you know, it's got to be a grassroots thing because I got to know that my bills are going to be paid before I book it. Absolutely. I'd be happy to help promote it. Band's got to be paid. Driver's got to be paid. Crew's got to be paid. You know, a lot of these guys now they're older now, cause I'm not going to go and get a 21 year old kid to tour with me unless He's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) With all due respect, you know what I'm saying, right? Oh, I know. (laughs) I get it. (laughs) I just don't want (laughs) to, I just don't want to be, you know, this, this grizzled old gray haired guy with the sack of potatoes, baggy ass pants walking around <laughs> looking like slow motion with some hyperactive, you know, 20 something millennial making me look bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I want the intensity, you know, Absolutely. so that's the challenge. It's, it's finding people that really want to do it. That's finding people that can do it. And it's also finding people that are, you know, an appropriate enough age so that it doesn't look stupid. Like I see Ted Nugent out there and he's got kids with him sometimes and that's fine for him, but it's like, that's not my look. I don't think for me, that's the right look. I get you. You know, I don't want to be out there with guys that are older that are dragging oxygen tanks on wheels around behind them. I've done that too. And that's not fun. <laughs> you know, you're sitting there and you're playing and you're pushing your drummer to play faster and you can see he's gassed and it's like, Oh man, get this guy some oxygen. You know, I'm not ready. <laughs> I find I'm happy. not ready for the, I'm not ready for the assisted living circuit yet. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I just got to find a happy medium. <laughs> got to find a happy medium. So, you know, guys in their, you know, late thirties, early forties or whatever that are, that are still playing can afford to take some time off and make some decent money, you know, but really uh, relive some of that intensity. Um, that's what I'm looking for, you know, because I've been practicing hard and uh, my legs may not move like they once did. And I can't head bang because, <laughs> you know, because of the uh, head banging related arthritis that I've given myself, but I still bring it. I get out there and I move and my fingers are much wiser than they used to be. So whatever is not there on the speedometer is way above it with the feeling and the no choice. So that's what I'm bringing. Well, definitely keep me posted if you're taking on the road, cause I will definitely be there and happy to promote it. Yeah. So. You wouldn't want to miss that one. I'm just warning you. You don't want to miss this. Absolutely. I will. If you come, I shall be there and I will spread the word. That's it. That's it. So maybe we can get a network of people like you out there that can connect the dots across the country and uh, start to knit together this Afghan of metal rebirth. Ooh, there you go. <laughs> Sounds good to me. There's your quote. <laughs> there we go. That's it. Well, I think that wraps up all my questions. I thank you again for taking the time out to talk to me today. It's been a real pleasure. And yeah, if anything happens with some live dates, keep me posted. And thanks again. Okay, man. Thanks. 
A big thanks to John for taking the time out for this interview. You can keep track of all his current activities via his website, johnchrist.com, including information on receiving private guitar lessons. I would also be remiss not to mention that Danzig, featuring his current lineup, will be performing several dates in the fall, uh, reportedly in support of his 1988 debut. No information that there's any reunion plans. Obviously, John didn't mention anything, but who knows? Maybe we can keep our fingers crossed for some type of October surprise. Uh, in addition, be sure to check out our earlier podcast episode from this year where we discussed the best albums from 1988, which we do discuss Danzig's debut album in detail. And also be sure to check back next week where I'll be discussing my memories of Fantastic Fest 2018 here in Austin, Texas at the Alamo Drafthouse, which included seeing the premiere of the new Halloween film and actually meeting Jamie Lee Curtis in person, which I still can't believe that actually happened. Uh, it was a crazy, very cool experience. I have to tell you guys all about that, as well as all the cool films I got to see this year. So check it back to you guys next week. Until then, take care and talk to you soon.